Hey, it's me. Welcome to Jelly, the podcast where I talk about Jesus, life, and entertainment, but not necessarily in that order to my dog, the one and only who listens. What's up? How are you guys doing? I don't know. I'm fine. Thanks for asking. So I know that we've been doing American Christianity stuff in that series. And then I realized, because if you remember, and I kind of remember, not really, but I believe in the last episode, I was talking about the remaining topics I wanted to cover in American Christianity, which was honestly the original inspiration and then it just spiraled into this whole thing and then I started talking about biblical archaeology which honest to god I didn't even know existed till somebody asked me to look into that and I was like whoa look at this thing so I put some of those pictures up on the Instagram at JLE podcast if you've seen that anyway so I was thinking about the last episode that I was going to do for American Christianity on angels and demons then I looked at how many I've already done and last week or whatever was part five so if I do this last one it's part six I don't really like the number six I don't know if it's superstition or what it is it's just I don't like that number so I was like I gotta do two more episodes of American Christianity because I can't leave it at five and I don't want to do six same reason I got two tattoos at one time because if I got the one I would have had six tattoos and I'm like no I don't want to do that can we do two at once now I'm getting those removed anyway that's not the point I'm going to be getting back to American Christianity I'm just going to split it up into two episodes so I think one episode we'll talk about angels one episode we'll talk about demons and then we'll have uh an even seven seven's not an even number no but it is a biblical number so that's what we're doing not that you asked there's supposed to be a blizzard tonight I don't know if I'm gonna make it on my trip. We'll see. I don't really believe them. I don't think it's snowing right now and it's supposed to be horrendous. As in stock upon provisions, the shelves are already bare horrendous, but whatever. We'll see what happens, I guess. Regardless, I've planned ahead for probably the first time in the entire time that I've been alive I've intentionally planned for the week ahead so we'll see what it feels like to be somewhat of an adult you know what really bugs me this doesn't have anything to do with anything but I do need to say it so maybe if I put it out into the atmosphere it will resolve itself you know when you go up to look up a recipe because you don't have anything to do and you're sick of doing research for your podcast so you just start googling random shit that's in your head well I was looking up cherry recipes chocolate cherry whatever like chocolate dip cherries I don't know how I wound up there but I did okay and then I'm on the site and it's like I just want to get to the recipe I don't need to know about the update of your recent in-laws visiting and that's why you haven't posted on here Sharon like just tell me My goodness, the amount of paragraphs you have to scroll down just to get to the list of ingredients. What is that? Why is it always like that with recipe articles? Just get to it. Why do you think I clicked on it? 
I also learned, speaking of recipes and food and such, that my dog does not like jalapenos, specifically pickled jalapenos. He was not a fan and I thought it was hilarious because he, everything is a treat to him. So, except for pickled jalapenos. He's so cute. I love him so much. He went with me to the dentist today and I was freaking out because I don't know. The premise is just scary. Think about it. You're going to be in a vulnerable position. People are going to be with tools in your mouth. I know it's necessary. I had to get a cavity filled, whatever. Yes, I'm a grown adult woman. Yes, I also asked my mom to come with me and I had my service dog there. He would be there anyway, but he knew I was nervous. We were like exchanging tense eye contact the entire time. It was fine. Everything was fine. My dentist is really good. He like numbs you up. All right, so now that I've gotten through all the important announcements, oh, I actually do have an important announcement here. So I will be guest starring, guest starring, guest talking, guest listening. I will be guesting, how about that, on a podcast. I don't have the exact date. We had to move it to sometime next week. So I guess when it comes out, I will tell you guys about it and then you can go over there and listen to them. So that should be fun. Oh, and I am going to be getting into your questions. Like I said, I know I keep saying that, but I'm going to. I have them all in a picture folder or whatever, and I'm like, this is getting overwhelming. The DMs are great. I love talking with you guys on Instagram at JLE Podcast. I do try to keep up with the conversations. It's getting a little out of hand. I'm thinking maybe I'll set up an email. Do the DMs for now. I'll let you know when there's a JLE Jelly email set up. And then we can organize all these conversations with me and the jelly beans. This is essentially one side of the same coin. Today I'm going to be talking about the Silver Bridge Collapse of 1967. There's a lot of information. It's quite sad. It's a little mysterious. I didn't even know bridges collapse that often. Are you excited? Yeah, me too. All right, let's get into it. The sources for this episode are many. An article on Timeline by Matt Raymond. There was another article called The Memories Still Vivid of Silver Bridge Collapse, written by Gene Hardman. From Disaster to Prevention, The Silver Bridge Collapse, written by T.R. Witcher. A 2017 article by Mary Beth Griggs called, (laughs) listen to this title, it's perfect. We'd rather bridges would never wobbled, but here's why they do. The 2019 documentary, which is really good, it's called The Silver Bridge Disaster. You can watch it on YouTube. I also used some stuff from the Alarmist podcast, and I found a couple articles from the New York Times. Here we go. What is a silver bridge, you might be wondering? Well, it's a bridge that's silver because they painted it with aluminum or something that was colored aluminum. Silver shiny paint, they called it the silver bridge. It was built 50 something years ago now. It was originally built in 1928, so the roaring 20s. Much preferred over the current 20s, if I do say so myself. Back then it cost $1.2 million to erect. I guess we can say that here, can't we? $1.2 million to build, which would be closer to $2 million today. 
the silver bridge connected i'm probably gonna butcher this town name galapolis ohio somewhere in ohio to point pleasant west virginia the bridge was 2235 feet long it stood 102 feet above the ohio river and it supported approximately 4,000 cars per day the silver bridge is the first bridge in the u.s to be built with i-bar link suspension instead of wire cable suspension i realize this is not a podcast on architecture and we're not all expert civil engineers here so i will explain it because obviously my degree is in architecture the last inspection for the silver bridge prior to the collapse was on December 8th of 1967. Other sources said December 6th of 1967. It was reported that the last inspection before the Silver Bridge disaster was on December 8th and then it collapsed seven days later. Inspection as as in safety inspection. So that's reassuring. The Silver Bridge collapsed on December 15th of 1967 around 5 p.m. The entire thing had fallen into the river in less than one minute. 64 people went into the river, 32 cars, 46 people died, 9 were injured, 2 bodies were never recovered. Six vehicles that were on the bridge at the time of the collapse somehow managed to get off the bridge before it fell into the river. So in a matter of less than a minute, six vehicles got out of there. One of those people being Charlene Wood, who was 20 years old, and I'm pretty sure she was pregnant at the time. That could have been another survivor that was pregnant. I don't know. This woman, Charlene, she said at the time that it happened, quote, I couldn't even describe what the noise was, end quote. She then threw her car in reverse and said, it stalled but kept going. Could you imagine? You're on a collapsing bridge and your car stalls. I mean, oh my goodness. So she just reversed it out of there. Shortly after the bridge fell in front of her, the wheels of her car were resting on the ledge that remained. So she's watching it tumble and then her tires are like hanging at the edge there. My goodness. Ben Cedar, who was a resident of Point Pleasant at the time, and he worked as a salesman in the 60s, he had crossed the bridge three times that day, the same day it collapsed. And the last time he crossed that bridge that day, it was no less than 15 minutes before the whole thing went down. Bill Needham, another resident, managed to escape through the open window of his truck after it plunged into the icy river. His partner, however, didn't make it. Howard Boggs was a passenger with his young wife and 17-month-old child. He was pulled to safety. The bodies of his wife and child were found in their car six weeks later. 55 years later, residents still remember the tragedy. Screams were heard from the riverbanks with no way to reach those in the frigid water. People clung to their sinking cars, screaming for help and yelling for their loved ones. Christmas presents floated among the bodies and debris because remember it was December. It was like 10 days before Christmas this happened. I would just like to take a moment of silence for those who did not survive. 
I don't want to take too long. Some of you may be driving and maybe you weren't listening to what I was saying and then you got distracted. I don't, I don't want to cause any more disasters because I'm talking about a broken bridge here. But I do want to acknowledge the 46 people that lost their lives. I think that's very sad and very tragic and maybe it could have been prevented. We'll see. There's a couple theories out there. So how did this happen? Was it an accident? Was it carelessness? Was there a flaw in the design? What's going on here? They built it in 1928, everything's great, and then all of a sudden in the 60s it just goes down. What? How? Obviously the Silver Bridge is no longer there, so let's look at something that's very similar in design. And I believe these bridges were also designed by the same company, but not the same bridge designer. And the examples we're going to be looking at are the three, they're known as the sister bridges in Pittsburgh. Three sister bridges. They were also built in 1928 with the I-bar method. So the I-bars are like links that connect. So the sister bridges, three of them, also use those. Their strength level is a two, which was actually lower in strength than the silver bridge. A two meaning it's able to withstand twice the amount of the expected weight. Clusters of I-bars mean if one fails, it won't collapse. So when they use I-bars, typically in the construction, there's groups of them. There's like four to six per section. So if one goes out, there's reinforcements. The steel in the bridges of Pittsburgh was weaker than the steel for the Silver Bridge. Was it faulty construction in the Silver Bridge? If In fact, the Silver Bridge used what they believed to be was a stronger steel. So what is an I-bar? Okay, I had to look it up and I know this is a podcast. I'll put a visual up if I can find one, but it's just a long steel plate and then it's two inches thick and it's 12 inches across and they're about 44 to 55 feet long. Then there's an 11 inch pin that joins the sections together. It looks like a bicycle chain. Picture a bike chain. Tom Vina of Bridge Operations on the sister bridges said they expected them to last 100 years and at the rate they're going now, I'd expect them to last 125 years, end quote. In terms of construction, Vino said, the major difference between the designers of the past and the designers we have today is that they were over designers back then, whereas today you need an inch of material both whereas today you need an inch of material but back then they used an inch and a half meaning you had a half inch of material that you could actually deteriorate before it impacted the structural capacity of the bridge if bridge builders what do you call them is there an official name if the erectors If the erectors of bridges in the past, if they were over designers that were overly cautious, more so than they are today, how could this have happened? That quote makes it seem like they were more thorough than what we have now. Could it have been the assembly itself? So not exactly how it was put together, if they had an extra inch or inch and a half of material, but maybe someone put the eye bars on wrong? or whatever, like you're doing Lincoln Logs and the whole thing just crumbles because that one log was messed up. The Pittsburgh-based American Bridge Co., they won the bid. 
They used the cantilever principle, which means they started from each bank of the river and then they met in the middle. And then when they meet in the middle, the whole structure is stabilized. So it's like one beam meets the other beam and then it's a whole bridge. The erector, yep, that's a job title. Didn't even make it up. Used standard annealed mild steel susceptible to corrosion as are many steels. There were factors of tensile stress, meaning where the holes were put into the eye bars. So they look like giant needles. Picture a needle, you got the long part and then the little loop and then the hole in the middle. That is like an eye bar, except the eye bar is huge and flat. So it looks like a needle. The material used and the exposure to the elements can lead to stress corrosion and cracking. Pittsburgh knew this which is why they built it using clusters of I-bars. So they knew the bridge is gonna be outside, it's gonna hit elements, steel corrodes, we'll use a bunch of them, they'll be like reinforcements. I believe they're actually called redundancies. That's how they built the sister bridges, which are still standing. So American Bridge Co. also built the High Bridge, High Carpenter Bridge, or the St. Mary's Bridge. It's two names same bridge it's 70 miles away from where the silver bridge was so same company however the designer of the silver bridge was a different designer for the silver bridge and he used quote new high strength high carbon heat treated steel end quote for the material for the silver bridge new material new designer could he be at fault we'll see the bridges in West Virginia were much longer than the bridges in Pittsburgh. I think that's going to be important. How much distance they spanned? We'll see. The high bridge was shorter than the silver bridge that was like an hour away. And it saw less traffic, held less live weight than the silver bridge did. This new design did have a safety factor of 1.5, so that means... It can withstand one and a half times the expected weight, but this didn't account for the increasing weight of cars over time, meaning cars got heavier after the 20s and so on. Jack Fowler of the Point Pleasant River Museum, they have a whole museum dedicated to... West Virginia has a museum for everything. It's an interesting state and the people are very nice. The River Museum, Jack Fowler talked about the Silver Bridge disaster. When they built it, everyone was excited. They had this new shiny, literally, high strength material. This bridge was thinner in design, but they had complete confidence in it. And for 39 years, cause that's how long it stood, people had immense pride in the Silver Bridge until that day in December when 90% of it crashed into the water. After they recovered the 46 bodies and the remains of the bridge were laid out and numbered, they began searching for the cause of the collapse. So let's talk about how each section of the bridge was built because obviously this is the field that I'm an expert in. An eye bar has a central joint that fits into the circle of the eye or the needle hole as I see it in my head. And then there are end caps that attach to one side with a one inch bolt. Picture a giant silver needle. Now step on it, makes it flat, prop it up on one side, then slide the circle pin that looks like a barrel through the hole. And then last, you attach the cap, that's it's quite literally a cap, that attaches to the 
one inch bolt. I'm not a thinker like this, so I'm trying to illustrate in an audio format. You probably don't even care. Continuing. Here's where it gets interesting. We've got these eye bars. We've got this long, thin, shiny bridge. Everybody's raving about it for over three decades. But people in the town were like, oh yeah, the bridge would move all the time. You'd get on there, you were on there long enough, you'd start to see it swaying. And you were like, oh man, gotta get off this bridge. That's how they would talk about it. They'd be like, the residents would say this bridge is gonna come down one day. But it didn't bother anyone because they were like, no, we have that heat transfer sensitive carbon material, it's fine. And I was like, okay, swaying on a bridge can't be normal. Like, it's hardly normal when you're slow dancing and what, like, the the act of swaying. What What's up with that? So I looked into it. Is swaying on a bridge normal? Then what I found is that it's not necessarily a bad thing. And what happens is, as I understand it, which is practically not at all, a certain number of people, they call it the magic number, and it's different for each bridge, is when you get the precise amount, it does have to be the precise amount. It can't, like, if it's 145 and the bridge starts moving, it's not going to happen with 144. Like, that's how particular it is. So a certain amount of people, like, counteracts the vibrations, and then that's what causes the swaying. So it does happen. It's not a surprise. It's probably not the best thing. Another resident by the name of Catherine Wood on that day said, quote, the bridge was coming forward like dominoes. The tower that fell went to the north, she said. Was it the weather because it was harsh, cold winter? Did that have anything to do with the collapse? Did things just snap in the cold? People said it was chilly and there was flurries of snow. It also happened around 5 p.m., so that's rush hour. There's a lot of traffic on this swaying bridge, and people were used to this motion. I don't think it brought anyone comfort. They just were like, oh, yeah, the bridge does that. They were told it was normal, and no one fretted that one day it would collapse, even though they made jokes about it all the time. After reassembling the pieces of the now-fallen bridge, it appeared that a single eye bar was the cause, specifically eye bar 330. Eye bar 330 had particularly high levels of stress left from its original manufacturer. So stress in terms of tensile stress, tensile, from the time it was made, it had signs of stress in this steel, and they think that the portion that was punched out for the hole is where the stress was at. It's a theory that this single eye bar, eye bar 330, could have been defective from the start. Because that's where they found the crack. And I did try to find where other eye bars cracked. Results were inconclusive. If you know of other fractured eye bars in the Silver Bridge, go ahead and DM me at JLE Podcast. I'm not even being sarcastic, I'm curious, because how could one of all the sections have been the only bad one? That's weird to me. This whole thing is weird to me, but that's very weird. The assembly of this particular eye bar allowed water to pool at the bottom of the eye hole, and this combined with a corrosive environment, meaning out in the elements, caused a stress corrosion crack. This crack grew slowly over 39 years. So decades, 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 little crack just expanding 
until it was about three millimeters long. Friggin' three millimeters! Isn't that insane? Tiny little crack just brought the whole thing down. Also, I think it's fair to note the steel likely would have had a low toughness in, on this particular day. It was 40 degrees. Was Ibar 330 the only one that was damaged? I really want to know. There were two per section, which is also a factor because usually they do more than two. Because if one goes out, what do you do? That's why they usually do like four or six. Come on, really? The only one that was unstable was Ibar 330? On the night of December 15th, 1967, a brittle fracture occurred almost instantly. At the point of failure, the crack grew rapidly and caused an asymmetrical load on the pin, meaning uneven weight, which led to twisting and then chaos as the single eye bar that was left for support vibrated off the pin. The chain severed, the tower fell to the north, the other tower was pulled down into the river, and many, many people died. Did they plan to replace these eye bars at any point? Recent inspections, meaning the one that happened a week before, proved there was no need to. So it's not like people were neglecting it. They looked at it. They didn't detect anything. Did they miss something? We'll see. After this devastating collapse and the catastrophic loss of life, people were freaked out. Obviously, I would be too. I'd probably never step foot on a bridge again. The high bridge, the one that was in the same area was closed immediately to traffic because people were panicking. The high bridge did have a different designer and less weight overall to deal with, but the public was spooked. And can you blame them? They don't want to listen to a speech about how a different guy designed it in a different way and there's not the same stress on it. No, just close the bridge. So they did. President Johnson at the time enacted the National Bridge Inspection Standards after the Silver Bridge collapse which entailed two years of mandatory inspections and then follow-ups as necessary. I believe the time frames were within six months or 12 months, depending on the repairs needed. The three sister bridges in Pittsburgh that are still standing and were all built in 1928, the same year as the Silver Bridge, in a similar method, have already been inspected over 20 times. To replace an eye bar, these giant flat needle things, they're very heavy, so you'd have to actually design a support system around the eye bar while replacing it and then remove it after adding a new one. So modern day non-destructive safety testing, because that's the other thing with these bridges, you kind of have to pull them apart to really put them back together. So how do we evaluate how much damage is there and how we need to repair it? So nowadays, we actually have better tools that make things safer. We could do x-rays, for example. We can even do what apparently is a sonogram and they put the gel over the metal and maybe we can cut fractures we wouldn't have before. So who is to blame for all this catastrophe and destruction and death that could have been avoided if we only knew that a single eye bar had a virtually undetectable crack in it? Who's to blame? Is it the municipalities at play in Ohio and West Virginia? Was it the people that approved the bid for who should build the bridge? Was it the bridge company itself, American Bridge Co.? Was it the designer? 
himself? Was it the steel manufacturer? Because remember we were saying that it had tension in there from the start, from when the hole was punched in. Was it the people that assembled the joint? Was it the inspectors that gave it an inspection a week before a ton of people died? J.E. Griner Company was an independent engineering consulting company that designed the bridge and they ended up having to pay $200,000 in damages. So I was like, oh, maybe we found the culprit here and they have a shitty bridge building record. I don't know. So I looked into it. Not really. I mean, Griner has done work in 33 states and 19 foreign countries with the total value of its projects extending to 12 billion. In 1969, it was acquired by some corporation, I can't say the name, and has operated autonomously as the parent of that company. In short, they don't have very many issues, so it's not like they're just building rickety bridges this whole time. However, someone had to be held accountable, which I understand. What are you going to do, you know? So they ended up having to pay 200000 in damages, which quite honestly is not that much. Dozens of people died. Christmas was ruined for the year of 1967 and probably long after that. Residents were plagued with fear and PTSD, which might have been the worst part. I was thinking about that, just the horrific scene that evening. Of course, it's horrifying to be caught in a disaster like that but could you imagine being on the sides of the river hearing people scream seeing it even watching cars sink and not being able to do anything you don't walk away the same after that some people couldn't even take the ferries that were used as a short-term solution when they didn't have a bridge to cross anymore people would go into panics and they would think that they would sink or something and It was bad. People were having nightmares that involved floating Christmas presents. It was a rough time. Other people still to this day will not drive on bridges. Then I looked up, because I've already been in this rabbit hole, so I might as well make myself comfortable. How many bridges exactly do we have and how many of them collapse on a yearly basis? There are over 1 million bridges in America that all receive regular inspections thanks to this tragedy. Currently, the Silver Memorial Bridge stands 1.5 miles south of where the collapse occurred. So how many of these go down annually? Turns out not a lot. However, 1 in 9 are structurally deficient. That doesn't mean they're going to break at any moment. But we need to keep tabs on them. It's honestly, don't freak out. It's something like single digits in the past 20 years. It's not that big a deal. Actual collapses unrelated to weather or hazardous conditions hardly ever happen. Oh, but then here we go. As I'm looking up all this stuff, January 28th of 2022, this year, so last Friday, just a couple days ago, hours before President Biden was scheduled to visit the city of Pittsburgh to discuss the condition of the country's infrastructure, so literally bridges. President Biden going to Pittsburgh to talk about infrastructure. The bridge collapsed into the snowy hollow below. At least 10 people were injured, four of them seriously enough to require hospital attention, according to a hospital spokeswoman, but no one was killed and officials said that none of the injuries were life-threatening. So that's good. No one died. How ironic. He's going there to talk about their infrastructure and the bridge goes down. Hours before. 
When I was listening to the Alarmist podcast, one of them said, you could extrapolate this into every problem that's in our country, end quote. And I'm thinking, yeah, like our government, which is currently as sturdy as the Forbes Avenue bridge that just collapsed days ago. Likely because our president, who, to quote Elon Musk, is a damp sock puppet, what can we do in the future? Well, we can add redundancies. They're horrible in writing, but perfect for the stability of bridges. A redundancy is defined as the capacity of the bridge system to resist failure at high loads. In my opinion, no one is to blame for the silver bridge collapse of 67. It happened because of a virtually undetectable fracture and no one saw it coming. Or did they? Maybe not the residents of West Virginia, but there could have been someone or something in Point Pleasant that knew of this inevitable disaster. And we will talk about that theory on the next episode. Thanks for letting me tell you a story. I cannot wait to tell you another. Jelly has new episodes twice a week, Tuesdays and Saturdays. Tell your friends, follow, rate, review. See you on Saturday, and then I will see you next Tuesday. How do I lose this pickle? Billy Daddy,